You may be seated. Our first scripture reading is from the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 2. As we preach through the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, we'll be reading in the New Testament, the book of Romans. We're going to have Dina come and read for us. Dina, if you would. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But if a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. As mentioned, we're in a sermon series in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a book of a collection of poems, prayers, and even songs offered up to God. Martin Luther said the book of Psalms is like a little Bible. It tells us truths about sin and redemption, even aspects of God's character. Today we find ourselves in Psalm 2. It's a royal psalm that tells us of a just, victorious king to come. Before we walk through this passage, we'll have Luke come and read this passage for us. Luke, if you would. Psalm chapter 2. Let's read together. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
I will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, Luke, for reading. If you don't mind, uh, if you'd please bow your heads in prayer with me before we walk through the word. Grace to you, Father. Uh, we pray for clarity. We pray for unction. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be moving in the act of preaching, but also in the hearts of your hearers. And so, Lord, as your word is received, we pray that it be received with faith, that we'd see you for who you are, what you've done, and ultimately the promise of your victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have a question for you as we embark on this passage. What do you do when you don't get your way? What do you do when you don't get your way? When I was a kid, I'd regularly threaten my parents with the fact that I was going to run away. I would see runaways on, in the cartoons on TV, and if you are familiar with this concept, they would have a stick and a, and a sack on the back of it that seemed to tie up all of their possessions. And so I'd run into my room and I would grab a towel or a t-shirt and I'll start to pile in my toys and my clothes and I'd head for the door. And this was a response of when I didn't get my way when I would want something or to go somewhere or to do something that I probably shouldn't. But instead of accepting my parents' rule and their care for me, I would plot and I would try and figure out how to get my way. And so what was my plan? My plan was to get away from authority. Though we don't want to say it, but we can be this way towards God. We're not a fan of his ways or his methods. We like our plans. We like our destinations more than we like his. And so we get after it. In this, we're just like the kings and rulers of earth found in this passage. We see their rebellion, but we often lack to see ours. But rebellion is wrapped up in each of our hearts. Solomon says it this way. Foolishness is wrapped up in the heart of a child. And this foolish rebellion has been seen from the beginning pages of Scripture in the garden to our present day in our governments. The kings and rulers are a reflection of our hearts, of the people that elect them. We see this in 1 Samuel when the people want a king like the other nations, and they get Saul. And this continues to this day. Today in our passage, we, are, we will see that we are just like the rebellious kings and rulers of earth. And if we don't want to meet their destructive end, we must live wise and happy lives. If we want that, if we don't want to receive their destructive end, but instead want to live wise and happy lives, we must embrace God's rule and reign over all of life. We'll see three ways in this passage that we are to embrace God's rule over all of life. Should I use the podium mic? Or is this okay? Is this okay? Great. 
To embrace God's rule over all of life, we must first do this, relish his restraints. Relish his restraints. If we want to live wise and happy lives, we must embrace God's rule by firstly relishing his restraints. We must embrace God's sovereignty by delighting in his dominion. If we want to embrace God's rule, we must relish his restraints. Look back with me at verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The rebellious kings are raging and they're plotting. Why are they doing this? The psalmist tells us. But this word for plotting is the same word that's used in Psalm 1 for meditating. And in this context, we can understand it this way. It's more like murderous murmuring. You might be familiar with this in the extent that we, when we don't like something that's going on, we can say something under our breath. We'll be like, I mean, I can show this person what I'm made of, or I can do. We do it. We're familiar with it. But the psalmist asks why. Why are they doing this? And though he asks why, he provides the answer within the following verses. They're plotting and planning to get away from God's control. They don't want his will. They don't care for God's control. And so they plot against God and his anointed. I ask you, how often is this us? We want our way. Instead of meditating on God and his way, we meditate on how to get our way. We might not do it with muttering under our breath, but we do it actively in our hearts. The words to relish in our, in our point means to enjoy. And the word restraint is a play on the word chords. A common restraint that all of us are familiar with is a seatbelt. It's what holds us to our seats as we drive our cars. And so God's cords are what keep us in this world. It's his rule, and it's good. When I was sharing with Andre Pinard this week, he was reminding me of a rendition of Psalm 2 in French. And he said this, his authority is our security. His authority is our security. God's authority over life is what keeps us secure in this world and all that we do. But so often we can be like the kings and want to cast it off. We don't want his security. We don't care for God's control. Instead, we want our way or the highway. You may be wondering, who is the anointed that this psalmist is speaking of? Both Peter and John ascribed this psalm to be written by David. And so when David penned it, it would make sense for him to speak of his own lineage. Maybe he's speaking of himself as the anointed one that the nations come against. We know that David had many enemies, and so we could read it that way. But as we see the Son of God, the anointed one that's in this passage, he seems to have more control and more power and more glory than just any simple human being. It seems that the Son of God is the begotten one, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father even now. And so it's these kings and rulers that come against Jesus and seek to sever God's rule and control from their lives. But the Proverbs tell us this, 
that their pursuits are vain. A king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wills. Colossians says it another way, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or things created, are all things created through him and for him. And so unlike the kings and rulers who are despising God's rule and control, we must be a people that relish his restraints, that enjoy his cords. Some of you in this room are military men and women, and so you might be familiar with this than even I am. But the quickest way to be dishonorably discharged or confined or even have, incur a loss of pay is insubordination. It's insubordination. Three things that are considered insubordination are either striking or assaulting an officer, intentionally disobeying a, a lawful order, physically or verbally disrespecting an officer while they're performing their official duties. There are few places in this world that insubordination is even seen or even taken as to be consequential. But what we see is that underlying the plotting of the kings and rulers in this passage is this very insubordination. Peter refers to these verses in his earth-shaking prayer in Acts chapter 4 as he ascribes them to the actions of Herod and Pilate and the Gentile people of Israel as they were against Jesus. Their striking, their disobedience, their disrespect of Jesus was insubordination. And though we don't, in, we don't interact with the incarnate Christ, our insubordination is still as grievous, whether it's our actions and our choosing and what God has not commanded, or it's in our thoughts and our thinking and things that he does not bless, or in our wanting and desiring and things that he would not desire. Instead, would we be a people that obey Jesus, our commanding officer, as is said in his word? Would we not disrespect God by deviously trying to get our own way? And if we're guilty of this today, would God lead us to repentance and that we'd seek his forgiveness? As Paul says, that we would be good soldiers, not getting entangled in civilian pursuits, but instead seeking to please the one who's enlisted us, Jesus Christ. Look to God's word. Look and know what he's commanded. Know what pleases him. Know what honors him. And this is how we can relish his restraints. So to embrace God's rule over all of life, we must relish his restraints. But secondly, we must rest in his response. We must rest in his response. Look back with me at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. What is God's first response to the plotting nations? It's laughter. It's mockery. Psalm 33.10 tells us that the council of nations is brought to nothing. This, this is why God laughs. All of their planning, all of their plotting against God and his Messiah come to nothing. 
Is this not such a comfort to us today? When we have moments where we, we, we wonder, is our government working in our best interests? Is it truly for Christ or is it against us? Is it against him? Is it against Christians? But we can be comforted today. Even if they are plotting, even if they are working out wickedness, their plans, God laughs at them. When anxiety of world power is going to war and amass more power comes upon us, is this not such a comfort to know that God is here and God laughs at their plans? This is not to say in any way that God is taking this lightly or he doesn't care to what's taking place. Instead, it's actually the quite opposite. The wickedness of the nations drives God to anger. It angers the Lord. That's what the text goes on to say in verse 5. It says this, Then I will speak to them, in his, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does the wrath of God look like? It's Jesus. That's what it looks like in this situation. He sets his king on Zion. And so either Zion can mean Jerusalem or it can mean heaven. There's a, a large precedent for that as we read the New Testament. Given the cosmic nature of this passage, that's what I believe. I believe it's heaven. And as mentioned, Jesus is ruling from heaven here and now at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus will judge the wicked. He'll judge the wickedness of governments, but also of individuals. Our God cares for injustice. He cares about his creation. He cares about us. And this is what verse 7 and 8 go on to tell us, that his reign is not just local, it's global. The nations are his heritage. The ends of the earth are his possession. He owns the whole world, and he will judge all persons according to their works. But what if we disrespect and continue to deny and live in our own way? What happens? Verse 9. That can sound... Verse 9 sounds like it's found in a, a punk rock album, but it's not. It's the righteous judgment of King Jesus. This, uh, this verse is quoted in Revelation 19, verse 15, which recounts the coming conquering of Jesus in his second coming, that Jesus would break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a pot. In the same way that there is consequences for the wicked nations and their rulers, there are consequences for those who don't rest in Jesus Christ. You might be wondering, Jim, where did you get the application of resting in Jesus? Look at verse 12. The psalmist calls the readers to pay homage to the king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist calls the readers and us to pay homage to the son. And there's a blessing associated to this. If we take refuge in Jesus, if we rest in Jesus, 
we get happiness. Do you want happiness? Do you want blessing? Rest in Jesus. A few years ago, and I say a few years ago, this is more than just a few. This is pre-Christ gym, so this is the context of the story. My cousin was getting married, and I was the one cousin who was not in the wedding party. And in that, I had a very crucial role of making sure that everything was getting done at every point. I literally missed the vows, the first dance, you name it. I missed every crucial point because I was either preparing for the points that were to come later on in the day. And now we're all well into the reception. I'm relaxing. I'm enjoying my time. And I don't know how and I don't know why but I end up getting into a kerfuffle with the groom's friends. And so these three or four men uh, and myself, quite literally, were about to take it outside. And as we're walking out of the banquet hall, my three far more muscular cousins stop us on the way out. And they say this, if you want this guy, you have to go through us. And at once, these guys immediately back down. It was then a moment where I felt the relief of that moment of their response. I knew I was safe. I knew I was taken care of. I knew that the fight was already won before it even started, and it never happened. I knew the rest, the refuge of my covenants. And so we are called to rest in God's response. We're called to rest in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's answer to this problem, and he's the answer to our problem. Unlike the kings and rulers, or even ourselves who like to go their own way, Jesus was the only true obedient son. He delighted in doing the Father's will. In John's Gospel, it tells us that the Father's will was like food to him. We don't live like that. We don't think like that. And let alone, we'd probably never say that. But this righteous king, Jesus Christ, took on the treatment that is deserved for our rebellion. He was ruled over by man, broken by their rule. The potter dashed as a pot. If you've yet to trust in Jesus, see him for who he is. The one who takes your place, our place, our substitute, but also our rightful king. He does not let us perish in the way. Instead, if we take refuge in him by putting our faith in him, we'll be saved from the coming judgment. Resting in Jesus, resting in God's response is resting in Jesus Christ, resting in his victory, resting in the fact that he has victory over his enemies, resting in his conquering over sin, Satan, and death, knowing that we've already won and that he will continue to vanquish his enemies until the, age, until the end of the age. And so to embrace God's rule over all of life, we're to, embrace, we're, we're to relish his restraints, rest in his response, and thirdly this, we must serve him with rejoicing and reverence. Serve him with rejoicing and reverence. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, O O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, therefore, because 
of Jesus as king over all the earth, we and all the rulers are to be wise. We're to be wise. How do we be wise? We fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the psalmist calls us to fear God if we are to be wise. We are called to serve him with fear and rejoicing, with trembling. In contrast to how the psalm opened, the kings wanting to go their own way, they are now called to obey. They are called to serve him and, not, and carry out his plan and not their own. They are called to look to his will and not their own. They are called to seek his kingdom and not their own. How much of our lives can we be fixated on seeking our kingdom to come? That we forsake the joy that could be ours. We forsake the wise way of contributing to the everlasting kingdom, and instead we foolishly spend our days obsessed with sandcastles that within a moment's notice will be wiped away by a small tide. Not bad things, but they're better. In Jerry Bridges' book, The Joy of Fearing God, the former military man gives us clarity to what the joining of fear and joy look like. He tells a parable of a young corporal and his commanding officer. He shares that early on, this young corporal would be so fearful as he was being whipped into shape of either being, of either being punished for messing up or being commended for doing something good. But more often, it was more the fear of consequences that drove him to be scared. But as he grew in his role, he began to see different sides of his commanding officer. He began to see his care and the working of the good of the young corporal. And one day, as he advanced in his career, him and the commanding officer were actually on tour, and they're driving in, within enemy lines, and they hit a landmine. And as they hit this landmine, within a moment's notice, the commanding officer is cast out of the car, and the corporal is set and trapped. And what does the commanding officer do? The commanding officer, though he is wounded, though he is harmed, he comes, and he comes to rescue the trapped corporal. The commanding officer risked his life to save the corporal. And though this story is very human, it does point to the joy and fear of the corporal, and it shows us the love and care of the commanding officer. But Jesus is greater. Our relationship to him is greater. And as a result, God's word calls us to be wise, to serve Christ and not ourselves. But not to serve under compulsion, but joyfully and reverently. If we serve him simply out of fear of judgment, we come to God in legalism. But if we fear him, if we only serve him out of joy, we serve him only out of emotionalism. And so God's word calls us to do both, to serve him with fear and rejoicing. And so we're called to serve him in our work, serve him in our homes, serve him with our authority, serve him with our time, serve him with our thoughts, and most importantly, in many ways, 
serving him by serving one another. There are many ways in which our church has needs. We almost announce it every week that this place needs some volunteers, this place could use some help, and maybe there are even needs that you're aware of, that you are serving, and we praise the Lord for that. But this is what God's word calls us to. It calls us to a serving life, a rejoicing life. And as we close, I ask you to remember the question that we began with. How do you respond when you don't get your way? How do you respond when you don't get your way? I pray in light of today's message that we would be a people that embrace God's rule over all of life. And even when things don't go our way, that we'd relish his restraints, we'd rest in Jesus, and that we'd serve him with joy and reverence. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a just and righteous king, one who rules over all the earth, that all of the earth is your possession. And so, Lord, we pray for justice. We pray for your rule to be known and to be seen and to be experienced, that you deal with the injustices that plague our hearts and our minds. And But, Lord, help us to believe these truths. Give us comfort today as we leave this place. In Jesus' name. Amen.